You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 117 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Before I get into the topic of this episode, I just want to express a feeling. You know, this is the 117th episode that I record. And really, I don't know the listener. I don't know you. I mean... I sit here in my solitude doing these podcasts and you are there on the other side of the internet listening to me. It is a one-way communication for me as well as for you. Our perspectives is what makes this experience different. For me it is broadcasting and for you it is listening. I think it's pretty cool and strange in a way at the same time. And I don't really have a point about saying these things. I just, you know, wanted to say it. Anyway, let's get down to business. Way back, long before the pyramids of Egypt had been built, tens of thousands of years ago, even a hundred thousand years ago, you could say, there existed an ancient world, long forgotten, where human beings existed far removed from current society. It was a simple life, it was a hard life, but one thing was certain, constant and powerful, and that was nature. She was an ally and she was an adversary. And the shaman was the alchemist that could talk to nature, tame her, ride her. And the shaman became the priest and the scientist. It was the, it was the perfect unity of the material world and the non-material world. The shaman conversed with nature and the shaman used the plants as medicine. Sometimes to cure physical wounds, other times spiritual wounds. And wherever in the world you went, you could find a potion or a brew. In those ancient times, as well as today, shamans administer a multitude of sacred plants, now referred to as psychedelics. A few years ago, in one particular ceremony that I will never forget, I was given a small cup of ayahuasca. After suffering through the usual foulness of ingesting this thick reddish-brown liquid, I settled in on my mattress. A choir of animals and insects in the rainforest, started their nightly overture and, well, maybe it's a better word to use, is their nightly symphony. And I felt a little ill, nauseous. My whole body was tingling. The sacred medicine songs began, the Icaros. To me, the Icaros sound ancient. They sound haunted. Yet, they're full of love and compassion. And understanding. And understanding devoid of judgment. Because who can really judge? (laughs) 
And the girls, they also sound sad, melancholic. There is a longing in them. And why is that? To explain my theory of why I think the Icaros are melancholic, I first have to explain my current thinking about what God is. God is the one. The one consciousness. The uncreated, unformed and eternal energy of all. There is only this one. Nothing else exists. And if there is only this one, this God, of which we all are a part, then God is alone. God is alone in his creation. A creation he perhaps, or she or it, created to feel less alone. Philosopher Alan Watts has a beautiful short little story from a talk called Out of Your Mind that can explain this kind of thinking a bit further. Let's listen. Let's suppose that you were able every night to dream any dream you wanted to dream. And that you could, for example, have the power within one night to dream 75 years of time. Or any length of time you wanted to have. And you would naturally, as you began on this adventure of dreams, you would fulfill all your wishes. You would have every kind of pleasure you could conceive. And after several nights of 75 years of total pleasure each, you would say, well, that was pretty great. But now let's, um, let's have a surprise. Let's have a dream which isn't under control. Well, something is going to happen to me that I don't know what it's going to be. And uh, you, you would dig that and come out of that and say, wow, that was a, a close shave, wasn't it? And then you would get more and more adventurous and you would make further and further out gambles as to what you would dream. And finally, you would dream where you are now. You would dream the dream of living the life that you are actually living today. That would be within the infinite multiplicity of choices you would have. Of playing that you weren't God. Because the whole nature of the Godhead, according to this idea, is to play that he's not. So the one is alone. God is alone. An eternal conscious energy. Alone. She, he, you, I, alone. We are the universe. There is only us, only I, it, God, the one. And so God creates all there is, and he creates companions. And in a way he is no longer alone, even if his creation is only a dream he is dreaming. And I keep saying he, but God is not a he, but you get my point. If God is a hand, I am one finger. You listening to this are another finger, but we both are just a part of the hand. A hand that God has created, but really there is not even a hand. So the one creates two and he is no longer alone. You know? He has created the world so he can share his eternal loneliness with somebody even if it's in his own imagination. And just as we humans try and embrace and merge with the divine, 
And using tools like ayahuasca or Icaros or meditation or prayer, we use these things to connect with something in order to feel less alone, to find a purpose in all this empty, mysterious, infinite universe. Because we are alone. Being born, dying, we do all those things on our own. Going over that threshold from somewhere to birth or from life to death. We do that on our own. Perhaps that is why we fear death. And that is why we scream when we are born. Falling into or out of the abyss. No one is holding our hand. So perhaps the one, whatever you want to call it, God, perhaps it created all that exists to try and feel less alone. Is that why the Icarus are so melancholic? They connect us with the loneliness of the divine. And they are melancholic because we are essentially alone. As above, so below. And this brings to mind the poem Song of the Reed by the great poet Rumi. In this poem, Rumi reflects on the human spirit through the metaphor of the ancient reed flute that is a popular instrument in Middle Eastern music. You'll hear it now playing in the background. Its sound is also that of longing, like Icarus, loneliness and yearning to belong, just as we do, just as God does. And I want to read an abbreviated version of this poem, Song of the Reed by Rumi, from a translation by Coleman Barks. It goes, Listen to the story told by the reed of being separated. Since I was cut from the reed bed, I have made this crying sound. Anyone apart from someone he loves understands what I say. Anyone pulled from a source longs to go back. Stay where you are inside such a pure, hollow note. Every thirst gets satisfied except that of these fish, the mystics, who swim a vast ocean of grace, still somehow longing for it. The spiritual path is a journey towards a unity with the divine, in my opinion. And I have called it God or the one or it or uh, the uncreated nothingness. Uh, But it is beyond name. It has never been expressed well in any mainstream religion. And that is why I understand atheists. I too reject the God of those religious texts. When I speak of God, it is not a man, not a father, not a mother. It is nothing and everything at the same time. It is me, it is you. It is utterly alien. Completely incomprehensible. But if you have the fortune to come in contact with it, it is also very, very familiar. It is as familiar as a reflection in the mirror, as comforting as the arms of your most precious love. And it is so big and outside of time and so beautiful that when beheld you can only bow and cry. And I 
have beheld it. I have met myself, whatever I am. I have seen what some call the God energy, what I like to call the divine mystery, the light. I guess this is what it means when you say you have been touched by grace, even if it is only for a moment. So let's get back to that night many years ago in the Amazon rainforest. I had just drank my cup of ayahuasca. I was feeling nauseous. I was on my mattress getting ready for my journey, which was beginning. And on that night, when I had this encounter with what I best can call the divine mystery. Call it God if you want to. It doesn't matter. Divine mystery sounds good to me. And you can say that I was drunk on some jungle drug. You can say I imagined the whole thing. You can say I intellectualized the experience after it happened, but whatever doubt you have of my sanity or whatever doubts you have about my experience, know this. I had it. I saw it. It was the single most powerful few seconds of my whole life and I don't know if it can ever be matched. And I fell to my knees weeping at the beauty of this experience. And in that encounter with the pure energy of the divine mystery, there was no fear, only love. A love greater than any love ever felt. And Rumi said it best. Fall in love in such a way that it frees you from any connecting fall in love in such a way that it frees you from any connecting so where am I going with all this about my encounter with the divine mystery about the melancholy of the Icarus and how I somehow feel that they are projecting the same loneliness as God is projecting to us You know, the title of this episode is The Importance of Ritual. Well, I think the only reason I had such an earth-shattering experience with the divine mystery was because there was a ritual surrounding the whole experience, before, during, and after. Reading online about how people do psychedelics, I often encounter instances when the ritual is utterly neglected, which is a shame as it is one of the most important aspects of taking any sacred plant, or even when doing some other type of spiritual practice. I have written a short essay on what I'm about to share now in the writing section on naturalbornalchemist.com. But I think it is important, or I think it is so important, that it deserves its own episode, so I'm going to talk about it. But you can also go there and read it. Uh, And remember, I'm not preaching. I'm not saying this is the law. I am just sharing what has worked best for me. And I feel it could heighten your own experiences with sacred plants as well. So receive any of the advice you are about to receive that agrees with you and reject what does not. But before I go into my thoughts on the importance of ritual, I first have to say a few introductory words 
And you might have, you might think I've already done that, but I got some more introductions to do. And this is probably the longest introduction I've ever done. Um, probably longer than what I'm about to introduce. But um, let's get going. Let's continue. Uh, so, is the experience with sacred plants real? Or is it all in the mind? The answer is that it does not matter at all. For instance, in the Shipibo tradition in the Amazon, the ayahuasquero slash shaman blows wild tobacco smoke, mapacho. He blows it around the initiate in order to protect him or her from evil spirits. Now, does this imply that evil spirits are real? Or are evil spirits just something that exists in the imagination and if they do, then is not the act of blowing smoke completely meaningless? As I mentioned earlier, it does not matter if it is real or not real. One thing I hope we can agree upon is that everything is in the mind. If we seem to experience something paranormal, or if we experience something normal, both those experiences are still only within the mind that is experiencing it. In other words, even if it is completely false that there are evil spirits, by the very act of blowing protective smoke, the initiate will feel protected. And by feeling protected, the coming initiatory experience will be much more pleasant. And if it is true that there are in fact evil spirits, then the blowing of smoke will actually protect the initiate. So you see, it doesn't matter if it's true or not. The only thing that matters is if it works. Naturally, if the initiate believes everything to be bullshit, then nothing will do any good. But why would such a person be interested in a bullshit initiation in the first place? With the above example, I hope I have explained that there is no reason to question if the ritual methods I will now explain have real magical properties or imagined ones, since the reason for using them is to put the mind in the right mood, to influence it into a certain space of being, into a certain space of awareness in order to achieve the highest level of beneficial initiation. And there are many ways to use sacred plants, and all of them could demand different methods, but instead of trying to be specific, I will try and explain it in fairly general terms. So first, intention. It is important to have a good intention before partaking of any initiatory experience. In order to keep such intentions firmly in the mind, praying can help, as well as chanting a, ma a mantra or other such things. Do not go into it half-assed. Cleanliness. It is significant to be physically clean. The act of washing yourself is symbolic of purification and regeneration, like the serpent shedding its skin. It puts the mind in a blank page kind of mood. If possible, the best way to do this is to baptize yourself in a river rather than taking a shower because the experience of standing naked in a forest and entering the river in order to prepare for uh, an initiatory experience is far greater than having a shower. A middle ground path could be to have a bath, put on some soothing music, light some candles and relax in the tub for an hour. 
It is also advisable for the space where the initiatory experience will take place to be equally clean. Now, if you're doing it in the forest, you know, do what they did in Gabon when I was there. They forced us to go around and clean up all the garbage that people had left in the forest. So, yeah, you can clean a forest as well. Again, with the risk of repeating myself, it does not matter if it is mumbo-jumbo that the sacred plants care if you are clean or not. But, but psychologically, it does matter. Respect. Treat everything as if sacred. For instance, do not come home from work, sit down and ingest whatever sacred plant at your disposal. Instead, decide when is a good time to do it. Perhaps there is a full moon next week. You know, perhaps there is an anniversary of something or a holiday or whatever. And you should do it at night when it is as dark as possible. The more the people in society are sleeping, the less disturbance you will get. As well as the benefit of having it be very dark. I never understood why folks want to do these things in the light. That is like putting blinders on. In fact, once I did psychedelics on my own, which I don't advise, you know, always have a sitter. Anyway, I got scared. So I turned the lights on to lessen the effect. So, be in the darkest dark you can create or you'll miss the fireworks. The only exception I would have to this is, you know, if you do it outside in the forest in the middle of the night and there's a full moon, you know, you you know, that's well worth it. But keep in mind that uh, the full moon, from my experience, and it has never not done that, you know, makes the, you know, if you took that much, if you took the same amount on another in any day, and then you take the same amount on the full moon, it will be twice as strong. You know, I don't know why it's like that, but, well, it's the full moon. Anyway, so, you know, if you want to go forward and you're feeling a bit scared, you know, you know, perhaps don't do it on the full moon. Um, but try and choose a sacred date because a ritual is usually best performed on certain occasions. And, it, and you will create the longing for the date to arrive and the symbolic concept of the coming of the dawn will make your mind more and more ready the closer it gets. Diet. Prepare your internal body by following a certain diet or by fasting. Eating is something we do every day and by having a strict dietary regime it subconsciously forces the mind to constantly be reminded of the coming initiatory experience. Protection. I've already spoken, spoken a bit about protection. Uh, so, for instance, you could uh, burn incense or any other material that could aid in giving the initiator feeling that the space is protected, crystals, markings on the floor, ornaments, or other such things. Or, like I said earlier, you know, blow mapacho smoke around yourself. The important thing to remember is that if a certain scent is used, for example, it should be a scent that is only used for such rituals. If it's not, then the scent would lose its special initiatory qualities. We do not want anything to be mundane. Certain sacred music of personal choice is also an excellent thing to include in the ritual, as well as the sounds of nature, if you're not in nature, as they are subconsciously, you know, deeply connected with our psyche. You know, for hundred thousands of years we lived on the you know, we lived in nature. 
So uh, if you're in, in an apartment, I suggest try and get some nature sounds. I personally prefer to use Icarus also. Uh, but if you don't have any initiatory experience with Icarus, then I might, you know, then it might do more damage than good. It might be confusing. But you can experiment. Philip Glass has a track called Openings from the album Glassworks, and it's a personal favorite of mine, and I, that's and it's extremely beautiful uh, when you are doing a psychedelic ritual. I'll post this track in the program notes on naturalbornalchemist.com so you can check it out. Conclusion. You know, if intention, cleanliness, respect, diet, protection, and all the other things I mentioned, if if these are done in this way, when you are initiating yourself with sacred plants or any initiation really, you know, it doesn't have to be with sacred plants, uh, but the initiation will become much more potent and you will get more from it. Add to this the fact that it is important to keep the mind silent, keep the heart open, and you are sure to have a great experience. And, and whenever possible, perform the ritual from beginning to end in nature at night. It is also advisable to have someone there that is not taking part you know, for support, preferably someone w- with experience. I cannot stress this point enough. So, good luck. So there you have it. I don't know if you agree with me about the longing and the loneliness of the divine and the mirrored feeling of the same longing and loneliness of us humans for the divine. You know, essentially we stand before existence. Whatever it may mean to exist for all eternity, that's what we have to face in death or now. And we're doing this in a place that is all we will ever know. Even if you're talking about this universe or whatever happens after you die, you know, that's that's what's that's it. Even if there are infinite worlds after this world, you know, from the perspective of the divine mystery, you know, there is only this one thing without end, without boundary. Um, It can be a scary thing to consider. But, you know, even if all those things uh, did not make any sense to you, I hope at least that you enjoyed my tips for pimping your next psychedelic experience. Anyway, I hope you got something out of this episode and that you don't think I was rambling too much. I still haven't mastered the technique of talking on my own, It is much easier to have guests to question, but hopefully I'm getting better. Throughout my life, I've always engaged in creative endeavors. Writing, making music, painting, making films, etc. But the very first thing I did as a child that I considered to be a creative process was that I made my own radio shows using the now extinct cassette tapes. I was probably about six years old when I started doing this. So it wasn't until I had done this podcast for at least a year that I realized, hey, I I have somehow returned to what I was doing at the start of my life. And if you listen to this podcast on a regular basis, I'm sure you know that it is time to close now with some music. And for a topic such as the one I've talked about, it has to be an Icaro. Come on. And this one is by Rosita. And, oh, Rosita... Um, 
I've had many wonderful ayahuasca ceremonies with with uh, this maestra. And uh, the track is called Ikaro de Ayahuasca from Yuin Husami's album Yakon Shama. And you go to yuinhusami.bandcamp.com to hear more. That's Y-U-I-N-H-U-Z-A-M-I.bandcamp.com. And if you haven't heard my episode with Yuin Husami, you can listen to my talk with him all the way back in episode 3. I also did one with his wife, Carolina, who runs an ayahuasca retreat for women only. Although not only, but mostly. And it's called the Tree of Light Retreats. And her episode is number 57, if you want to check that out. So just go to naturalbornalchemist.com to check out these episodes and find uh, all the other links I've uh, mentioned. And uh, you can also, you know, check this. I don't know where you're listening, you know, to get back to what I said at the very beginning of this episode. I don't know who you are or, you know, I don't even know how you're listening to this. But, you know, we're on Stitcher or we, we, I am or, well... I and we is the same thing, really, you know, considering what I have mentioned in this episode. Uh, I'm rambling now, but, you know, we're on Stitcher and iTunes. And, uh, well, what else can I say? Oh, yeah, yeah. Freedom is in the mind. <laughs>